morning. If you don't know me, my name is Adam. It's great to have you with us this morning and to be able to open up God's Word together. And this morning we continue the sermon series that we've been in for a few weeks now called Divine Design, Rediscovering the Christian Vision of Sexuality. For the last few weeks we've been looking at what God's Word, the Bible, has to say to us about our sexuality. Now if you are a guest with us this morning, if this is your first time here, then we don't talk about this all the time. I've said this before, but this is not a bandwagon that we get on regularly. But we do believe that it is important for us to talk about. Because our sexuality is such an important area of our lives. And our hope has been for this series that we might clarify what God expects of us as his people. That we might come to know and understand and cherish God's design because we believe that only when we're living in submission to God's design will we flourish. And so far in this series we've talked about the core convictions that are at the heart of the Christian vision of sexuality. We've looked at Jesus' humanity and what that means for our sexuality. We've talked about the reality that we are created male and female in the image of God. Last week we explored the one flesh union of marriage. And today we come to God's design for sex. Now obviously we've talked about and touched on sex at a number of different points in the last few weeks. But this morning we want to specifically ask the question, what is The purpose of sex. Why does it exist? Why did God give this gift to us? Now there was an article released in 2004 in Time magazine which said this. said, of all the splendidly ridiculous, transcendently fulfilling things humans do, it is sex that most confounds understanding. What in the world are we doing? Why are we so consumed by it? The impulse to procreate may lie at the heart of sex, but bursting from our sexual centre is a whole spangle of other things. Art, song, romance, obsession, rapture, sorrow, companionship, love, even violence and criminality. Why should this be so? Did nature simply overload us in the mating department? Or is there something smarter and subtler at work? Some larger interplay among sexuality, life and what it means to be human. Now do you hear what the author of this article is saying? They're wrestling with the purpose of sex. Saying sex is great and satisfying and enjoyable But what is the point? Why do we have it? And that's a great question. And in his really outstanding book, which I would commend to you, Timothy Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, he suggests that there have been three answers to this question throughout history. That there are three common attitudes towards sex as you survey human history. He would say that number one, the first view, is that sex is simply an undeniable urge. That it's just a a bodily appetite, kind of like eating or drinking. 
And so anytime we feel the need to indulge, we should feel free uh, to indulge our appetite. And we should feel free to sample multiple cuisines and try out new recipes because it's unhealthy, even unnatural, to suppress, to limit a natural appetite. That's number one. Number two, he suggests that sex has been viewed as a means of self-expression. In other words, sex is for our individual fulfilment, for our satisfaction, for our meaning and purpose in life. And in this view, sex is built upon your feelings and it's fundamental to your identity. In other words, the most important thing about you is your sexual orientation or who you're having sex with or whether you're even having sex. It's self-expression. Number three, Keller suggests, is that sex is a necessary evil. In other words, some people throughout history have viewed that sex is is degrading and dirty, but it's kind of necessary for the propagation of the human race. Those are the three common attitudes that Keller suggests we have towards sex. Now, if I was to ask you, what is the attitude of the Bible towards sex? Which of those three attitudes does the Bible exhibit towards sex and sexuality? What, What would you say? I think that the common response, perhaps not among us, but certainly in our broader culture, the common response would be number three. That sex is viewed by the Bible as a kind of necessary evil. It's a little bit degrading, it's a little bit dirty, but it's necessary for the propagation of the human race. You see, most people assume that the Bible has a negative attitude towards sex. And in some cases, the church actually bears some responsibility for this reputation. For example, in the Middle Ages, there was a French bishop who encouraged Christians to abstain from sex on Sundays in remembrance of the resurrection, on Mondays out of respect for departed souls, on Thursdays to focus on Christ's return, on Fridays because Christ died on that day, and on Saturdays in honour of the Virgin Mary. Now, you'd be hoping that you had some free time on Tuesday and Wednesday. Another example would be more common for us today is that to be a Catholic priest today, you have to be celibate. Now, I totally respect someone who would you know, give up sex to serve God, but this concept, this requirement, somehow communicates the idea that sex is unspiritual. That it's kind of beneath someone who would really want to serve God. And of course, this is not just a, a Catholic issue. Perhaps you grew up in a church context where sex was rarely or never spoken about. Or if it was spoken about, it was only spoken about negatively. Sex was communicated as this kind of dangerous, degrading thing. The message was essentially, sex is dirty, so save it for the one you love. And so the church bears some responsibility for this reputation. This idea that sex is somehow ungodly or unspiritual, that the Bible has a negative attitude towards sex. In fact, Patricia Wirakun, she's written a book called Teen Sex by the Book. She's a a 70-something Indian lady. She actually spoke at our... Um, oh, Sri Lankan, I think Sri Lankan lady, sorry. She spoke at our denomination's youth convention earlier this year. 
She's a sex educator, a researcher, a therapist. I actually think she calls herself a sexologist, which I didn't know exists, but apparently it does. She writes in this book, she says, people usually think God is against sex because sex is fun. And God is the cosmic killjoy who only wants us to be good. And to be good, you have to be boring. And if you have fun, it must mean you are being bad. Remember, she's writing to teenagers here. She says, the devil's most basic lie is that godliness is boring and repressive. And sin, especially sexual sin, is fun and exciting. The truth is exactly the opposite. Godliness, including godliness in sexuality, can be fun and exciting. When people follow God's way of living, they show that they trust him and believe that following him is the best life possible. And indeed, if we open up the Bible, we actually see that the Bible is openly and overtly positive about sex. Right from its opening pages in Genesis 1, the Bible teaches that God made us as sexual creatures. That God made our physical bodies, our sexual organs, and he said that it was good. The Bible tells us that in Jesus Christ, God himself actually took on a human body. And that one day he will give us physical, resurrected bodies forevermore. The Bible also contains some poetry that would make some of us blush. In fact, there is an entire book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon, devoted to rejoicing in the delights of sexual love in marriage. Some of you say, really? Yes. You should read your Bible. I've said it before. In the book of Proverbs, husbands are encouraged to delight in sexual love with their wife. In 1 Corinthians 7, married couples are commanded to regularly give themselves to one another. If anyone claims that the Bible has a negative attitude towards sex, it simply reveals that they haven't really read the Bible. The Bible's clear, God is not anti-sex. God is not nervous about sex. God is the creator and designer of sex. Or as Patricia Wirakun again says, the Bible has good news about sex. God is for it. God invented sex and blessed us with bodies that are built for sex and brains, wired to feel sexual desire and sexual pleasure. Now what this means is that if we want to understand sex, properly relate to sex, then we need to understand God's design for sex. We need to understand why God has given us the gift of sex. And to do this, we need to go back to the beginning. Like we've done for gender and like we've done for marriage, we need to go back to the account of creation in the book of Genesis where we discover the God-given purpose of sex. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. It's pretty easy to find. Just go to the start of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 26 to 28. Now, as I mentioned last week, Genesis 1 narrates for us the creation of the world and the creation of humanity. And in the creation of this first human couple, we see the God-given purpose of sex. So let's pick it up in verse 26. This is what we read. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, 
over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God creates this human couple and he gives them a specific task in the world. And that is to rule over his creation. That's what we see in there, there in that phrase. So that they may rule over. In other words, this means we are to steward and to look after God's world. We are to advance God's purposes in the world. So what does this look like? Well, we're given some more information in verses 27 and 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, as we've already seen in this series, when God made mankind, he did not just make a human being, a single, solitary individual. He made male and female, equal but different. See, as human beings, we are equal in value, dignity and worth. But as men and women, we are different. And one of the most obvious ways in which we are different is we have different bodies. But our different bodies are designed by God to complement one another. So that when they come together, they are a perfect fit. And this is purposeful and significant, as we see in verse 28. Look at what we read. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so God creates this human couple and then he blesses them. And what's the content of this blessing? Well, very simply, it's the blessing of sex. Be fruitful and increase in number. That's Bible speak for have sex. And so the first time that sex shows up in the Bible, it's not condemned by God, it's blessed by God. The Bible views sex as a blessing, as a gift from God. But it's not just a gift in general, it's a gift with a specific purpose. God blesses sex not just because it's enjoyable and pleasurable, though it is those things in the right context. God blesses sex because it serves a specific purpose in his world. What is that? Todd Wilson helps us. He says, In our culture, sex may be viewed as a blessing because it feels good, but in the biblical vision, sex is a blessing not because of the pleasure it brings, but because of the purpose it serves. To unite lives and to create life. According to the Bible, that is the overarching purpose of sex. To unite lives and to create life. Now we saw the first purpose of sex last week in Genesis chapter 2 when we looked at marriage. We saw that sex is what brings a husband and a wife together in the one flesh union of marriage. It's the glue that binds a husband and a wife together. But we see this second purpose of sex here in Genesis chapter 1 where Adam and Eve are commanded to be fruitful and to increase in number. In other words, the way that we steward God's world, the way that we advance God's purposes in his world, is to have and raise children who know, love and obey God. This is God's design and purpose for sex. 
to unite two lives in the one flesh union of marriage and it's to create life within the commitment and safety of that one flesh union. To unite lives and to create life. Now, I'm very aware that to define sex in that way, as I've just done, as the Bible does, to say that sex is for this specific purpose and in this specific context, it's not a very popular or a very common view among us today. In fact, it not only sounds a little bit out of date, it also sounds, to be honest, a bit downright crazy. And this is not evidence that we live in a progressive and enlightened society. This is evidence of our rejection of God. Our rebellion against his design. See, every area of our lives has been fractured and marred by our sin, by our rebellion against God, including our sexuality. In fact, after Adam and Eve disobeyed God in Genesis chapter 3, one of the first areas of their lives that was affected was their sexuality. In Genesis 2, before they rebel against God, we're told that they stand before God, they stand before one another, naked and not ashamed. In Genesis 3, after their rebellion against God, they go looking for fig leaves to cover themselves up. Shame has entered into the world. And today we still live in the shadow of this rebellion against God. And what we see happening in our own lives and what we see happening around us is the separation of sex from its God-given purpose. To put it bluntly, we have severed the act of sex from the institution of marriage and from the blessing of children. In fact, to bring it a little bit more recently, there was a movement in the 1960s called the Sexual Revolution. And it was known at the time and is still known today as kind of the pursuit of free love. It could be summarised as the pursuit of consequence-free sex. The pursuit of sex apart from commitment and apart from children. Now, of course, we live kind of downstream from the sexual revolution and so we might ask ourselves, well, what's been the result? How well did this kind of pursuit of free love work out? Did it lead to more freedom and more flourishing and more beauty? Well, I think if we look around at our own lives, if we look around in our broader society, it doesn't take much to see the incredible cost and the incredible consequence. I mean, there's the multi-billion dollar porn industry which is built upon exploitation and has destroyed countless lives and relationships. There's the marginalisation of children that we see today. You see, when sex is mainly about individual pleasure, then children become an inconvenience at best and a problem to be eliminated at worst. There's the misuse of our bodies, both ours and other people's. Again, when sex becomes about individual pleasure, we treat our body, we treat someone else's body as simply a tool to be used by us. Now we could go on, but the point is not to kind of make us all feel guilty and to point fingers, but rather to simply acknowledge the reality that when we separate sex from its God-given purpose, we not only misuse the gift of God, but we also cause harm to ourselves and others. As Ray Ortland puts it, he says, Sex is like fire. In the fireplace, it keeps us warm. 
outside the fireplace, it burns the house down. And this is why the Bible insists that sexual activity should only take place within the context of marriage. And the Bible does this not because it's trying to limit our freedom and limit our enjoyment and be repressive. The Bible does this because it's trying to increase our enjoyment, increase our satisfaction and to protect us from harm. Or as Todd Wilson says, he says, we believe that sex is only for marriage, not because Christians are killjoys, but because we have a realistic and exalted view of the power of sex. Sex isn't a toy or plaything, it's a sacred and sovereign power, strong enough, in fact, to bring new life into being. When something is powerful, think of a downed power line or a loaded gun, you aren't careless when you handle it. You understand that it can kill or harm you if you aren't careful. Sex is a powerful creative gift, something God gives us for good purposes. But if we misuse it and are careless, it can profoundly harm us. And this is why sex can be a difficult topic for us to talk about and to discuss. Because for, for some of us, for most of us I would say, sex comes with baggage. In fact, Sex has scarred some of us so badly that to even bring up the topic is to tap into some painful experiences. Perhaps you, were being, you have been betrayed or misused by someone in this area. Let me just say that Jesus fiercely condemns those who misuse and mistreat other people for their own purposes. And Jesus shares in the grief of your experience. He doesn't look on you with shame and he won't turn you away. He stands ready to forgive you, to receive you, whatever is in your past. And God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Because all fear, all anxiety, all shame, all pain will one day be no more. For others of us, the topic of sex does not evoke pain but longing. Perhaps you'd love to be married and to enjoy the blessing of sex and to have children, but you aren't currently married. Perhaps you're single. And that's something you find disappointing, maybe even frustrating. May I encourage you to trust God and his calling upon your life. In whatever season you might find yourself in, whether that's marriage or singleness. In fact, this is what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in a, in a discussion about marriage and singleness. He says, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. God has called you to be faithful in whatever season of life you might find yourself in at the moment. There are others of us who are married and we don't have children, but that's not by choice. Perhaps you've had trouble conceiving or you are having trouble conceiving and it's become a heavy burden for you. Let me just say that it's okay to feel the pain and the hurt and the loss. You don't have to quickly get over your sorrow. You can bring your sorrow to God. And you have a saviour who is well acquainted with grief. In fact, the Bible calls Jesus Christ a man of sorrows. And he not only promises one day to wipe away every tear, but he promises to be with you right now as each tear falls. 
Others of us, we're married but we're not sure about having children. You might look at the chaos of this world, at the busyness of life, and you're not sure if having children is the best idea for you. Now I wouldn't presume to know you or or to judge your circumstances, but all I would say is that we need to be open to what God might do. We need to be open to the procreative purpose of sex. And we should remember what the Bible says about children in Psalm 127, where we're told children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from Him. There are also teenagers and young adults among us today, and I'd like to address them for just a moment. If you're a young person and if you desire to honour God and to follow Jesus in this life, then you will have different values and different priorities from your friends. And this will include in the area of sex. And so maybe when your friend asks you, well, why aren't you sleeping with your boyfriend? Don't you love him? You might respond to them with something like, well, of course we love each other. That's why we're not having sex. Our relationship isn't at that stage yet and we're still getting to know each other. We're still working out whether we want to commit to one another for the rest of our lives. To have sex now would be manipulative and unloving and disrespectful. And it's the same for the guys. When your friends ask you about having sex with your girlfriend, you might say, well, no, we don't do that sort of thing yet. I love her too much to use her like that. It's too early. If she trusts me enough to live with me for the rest of our lives, then we'll make promises before God and before our family and then I can ask her to give her body to me. But not before. Now your friends might respond in all different kinds of ways. They might openly mock you and ridicule you. They might talk behind your back about how different you are and how weird you are. They might secretly respect you and wish that they actually had something like you. They even might be more interested in finding more about Jesus. Because what you're saying is that Jesus is more important to me than sex. Whatever the response of your friends might be, what ultimately matters is not their opinion, but God's opinion. And to live in line with God's design is always for our best, it's always for our flourishing. Finally, I'd like to address the largest group among us today. Because it's all of us. Sexual sinners. The reality is that all of us are sexual sinners at some level. Sin touches upon everything that we are, and this includes the area of sexuality. And none of us are perfect. And perhaps when you hear that, it it grates on you a little bit. Maybe you did not have sex before marriage, you're not committing adultery, you're not looking at pornography, and as far as you're concerned, it's other people who are sexual sinners. But Jesus said to us, he said, I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus moves from, simply from just what we do to also our interiority, what we think, what we desire, what we dwell on. And we've all sinned sexually, whether in thought or deed. And if there are certain things we have not done, then it's only by the grace of God. And there's no room for complacency. In fact, God's word warns us and says, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If you think you're above or beyond the reach of sexual sin, then be very, very careful. Be vigilant, God's word would say. Others of us, though, are painfully aware of our failure in this area. 
We feel like we're drowning in sexual sin and we just can't get our head above the water. Or others of us feel too dirty, too unworthy because of our past. I mean, wherever we find ourselves, the reality is that we are all in need of mercy. Every single one of us needs the cleansing that only God can give. And the good news of the gospel, the good news of Christianity, is that God has freely given it to us in Jesus Christ. See, we can run to Christ, the friend of sinners, even sexual sinners, and he offers us costly, abundant mercy. See, because of his life, his death and his resurrection, Jesus has taken our sin and he offers us his righteousness. He has borne our shame and he offers us his cleansing. He has died our death and he offers us his life. Our sin has been dealt with and it will never be counted against us. Our shame has been covered and we're perfectly clean in God's sight. In fact, remember what the Apostle Paul said about us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? After detailing the seriousness of our sexual sin, he went on to say, And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, Jesus receives broken sinners like us and he washes us clean. And he sets our feet on a new path towards God. And the proof that you are on that path It's not your sinless perfection. It is your love and reverence for Jesus Christ. It is your desire to have Jesus as the defining reality at the centre of your life. So have you come to Christ? Are you walking with Christ? He receives us freely, forgives us fully, and sets our feet on a new path and with new hope towards God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are desperately in need of your cleansing and your mercy and your forgiveness. And Lord, we thank you that you have so freely and abundantly given that to us in Jesus Christ. So Lord, wherever we might find ourselves in life right at this moment, maybe there's things that we need to repent and confess of, Lord. Bring them to you. Bring them into the light. Help us to do that. Maybe there's shame, Lord, that that we feel like we can't break free from. Help us to know that you've loved us and forgiven us and help us to reach out to someone if we need to talk and to pray and if we need help. Lord, wherever we find ourselves, We pray that you, by your Spirit, the great physician, would give us all that we need. Because you are our God. We are your people. And we give ourselves to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, would you now stand and hear these words from the Word of God. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, 
majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, both now and forevermore. Amen.